And if you would please be opening to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Preachers have a unique way of having to apply the message that they preach before the message comes. Today we're in the virtues that we're looking at. Today we're going to look at humility. So what I did this week is I said, I'm going to hold myself up in a cave and I'm not going to do anything because I do not want to apply humility this week. <laughs> Only to realize, man, I've got so many things in my life over the past few years that the Lord has used to humble and just increase my dependence upon him. So I think less of me and more of him. But this uh, familiar, possibly familiar interaction of James and John with Jesus uh, and how Jesus, one, responds to them, but then also responds to the disciples and what he describes as really being what true greatness really is. We'll hone in there, but look, we'll investigate what is humility and how do we as God's people pursue it? How do we put it on? What do we do? You look, Mark chapter 10, verse 35, the word of God says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Think about that. Anybody tell Jesus, you're telling Jesus that. <laughs> Teacher, we'd like for you to do whatever, whatever we want. Boy, we, we might not say that out loud, but we sort of act like that with God, don't we? And we do a, do a little hissy fits when we don't get what we want. But he said to them, Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? Patience. He could have, who do you think you are coming to me? Ask, don't you know who I am? Jesus, ever the humble one, says, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant to us. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and the other at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand or my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those who, for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they were, began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who, cons- who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them? But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In this passage, we see dunce, dunderhead disciples. But we see greater, a wonderful, humble, patient Savior. So in order for us to grow in humility, we need to look at Jesus. But this passage brings up uh, for us that we, we all the time, if there's a picture of an event that we know we attended or we were present 
we will look for ourselves in that picture real quick. Am I in any of these pictures? And especially with social media, you're going through, am I? I'm just looking to see, but I notice if I'm not there. James and John are saying, hey, Jesus, when that ultimate picture is taken, can we be like right next to you on either side? That's some serious courage to ask the Savior for. But yet, they, they were looking for Jesus to validate their standing. God, Jesus, can we not just be in the picture, but can we be really close to you in the picture? I have, I, I, I'm thinking about just meeting celebrities here and there. Everybody always wants a picture with that celebrity. Can I please be with that celebrity? We, we look for ourselves, but what are we doing in that moment is we're, we're seeking some validation for our worth and our identity, and our experience. We want to be identified with somebody. I met that famous person. I have a picture to prove it. And look, don't think that the disciples were, they, they became indignant with James and John, not because they were humble. It's because they didn't have the courage to ask Jesus for those spots before James and John did. So James and John, can we be everybody else? Why did you ask that? I wanted that place. I wanted to be next to Jesus. What in the world? That's why Jesus calls all of them. He knows all of their hearts are looking for their, their position in the picture with Jesus. And he calls them together and he says, let me teach you something. True greatness is not the prominence of being next to me. It's being seen with me when I serve. And when he says the son of man, a lot of times we look at that and think that's, that's kind of the term that uh, is helping us, identi- Jesus identify with us. He's a son of man, son of God, son of man. Actually, that, when, when Jews read son of man, the word that, they, that comes to mind for them is king of all kings. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. So he says the king of all kings came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus demonstrated humility for his disciples over and over and over again. Remember, he's washing their feet. He he takes off his robe in John 13, the Last Supper. He puts it around his waist and he gets down on, on the floor and he washes their feet. The king of all kings, the king of glory is humble. His response to the brothers is humble as well. He responded with patience. What do you want me to do? Are you able to drink the cup? But he also responds with deference. That's not for me to grant. That's a humble statement. He's honoring the Father. That is for who it has been prepared. The Father has an idea. I'm not, I'm not going to compete with the Father. I, I'm going to defer to him. It's a humble interaction with James and John and the other disciples. We as God's people, we need a spirit-empowered humility. And we'll get into the contours of that in a second, but let's first try to understand humility. Uh, humility is a very slippery quality because once you think you have it, you just lost it. I think I am pretty humble. No, I'm not humble anymore. 
And this is the, what's interesting, I find, is that humility is not listed as a fruit of the Spirit. So when we ask God, give me humility, we're not asking for something that's already there, like all the fruits of the Spirit are there, we need to mature into them. Humility's not like that. Because in Scripture, humility most of the time comes with a command. Humble yourself. So if it's not a fruit that's already there, it's, it can be better understood as a response to the Spirit's work in us, for us, and around us. It's a response to God. Humility is a response to God that we give him when we see truly that he really is God. When we see Jesus and the glory and and the, the power of the gospel and God, what he accomplished through the gospel, we respond in humility. We humble ourselves. We take a back seat. We don't look for ourselves in the picture anymore. Andrew Murray, a couple resources I'm going to... These, these two resources have revolutionized my understanding of humility. The first one, Andrew Murray's book on humility. Look for the unabridged version because this definition that I came across in chapter 1 when I was around 20 years old is not in the, the updated version. So look for an unabridged version. This is what he says is humility. Simply the sense of entire nothingness which comes when we see how truly God is all and in which we make way for God to be all. It's, it's, just, it's removing ourselves from the picture. It's removing ourselves from the equation. Humility is simply making way for God to be all in our lives. This is exactly what we see in Jesus' life And in his ministry, I'm going to quote from this in a little while, Tim Keller's book, very slender book. I I read this uh, the other day, just reread it within 30 minutes. I'm a fast reader, and I've read it a couple times before, so I kind of knew what was coming. But you can read this within an hour. You might have to put it down, think about it a little while. We have several copies in the cafe um, that you can uh, purchase today. I don't know how much they're for. Kerr put them up there. Do I just make a... He's not here, so I can make a a dollar. (laughs) A dollar. He's going to be annoyed because that's that's to help. (laughs) All the stuff for sale in there is to help our our youth community go on a trip this summer. (laughs) Um, Freedom of self-forgetfulness is a really helpful resource as well. So this is humility. When we recognize it's not about me, it's all about God and in which we say, I'm going to posture myself to make sure that God is everything in my life. Humility is grounded in God. Church, we, we serve a humble God. I think the greatest expression of his humility was the fact that he was born in a stable. He was born as a poor person. That's huge. He was born dependent on the very creation that by his breath he sustains. Jesus was born in a stable with animals. That is not how kings process through life. They want pomp. They want circumstance. They want everybody to know. They want all the gold, all the silver, all the shiny stuff to be present as a demonstration of their kingship. 
Jesus does the opposite. He also gave an example of his humility in his ministry by his obedience to the Father. He just, he obeyed. And in Philippians 2, Kerr brought this out a couple weeks ago. Do nothing. This is Ephesians, uh, I'm sorry, Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So we have the mind of Christ in order to respond in humility like Christ. But this is what he did. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Remember, that's what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. He counted equality with God something he could reach on to. I want to be like God, knowing good and evil. Jesus says, this is how Adam should have responded. He's God. I'm a man. I can't, I can't grasp onto him like I think. He, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the, the cross that Jesus took for us It's the greatest demonstration of humility. Why? Because he's the king of all glory. And he died. Kings don't die for their people. Kings don't send their sons to die for people. As the ransom. Our God does that. God is a humble God. And God is also drawn to the humble. You know, we think that God is drawn to our moral perfection or our moral performance. I have done a great job for you, God. I, I, I'm just, my, I haven't cursed in a long time, and I didn't flip that person off when they cut me off in the car. God, I am doing, we think that he's impressed by our performance, but he's not. Listen to what catches his eye in Isaiah 66, verse 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So I have complete authority and rule over all. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Humility captures God's attention. And the the, the reverse is true. God is also repulsed by the opposite of humility, which is pride. He's repulsed by that. He has to move away from it. He has to oppose it. James 4, verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There is opposition that comes from God. He responds to pride with opposition. But what does he do for the humble? Those that catch his eye and he looks, he gives grace. We live in a culture that celebrates pride. And it, it, sometimes it's overt. Most of the time it feels, we, we feel the celebration of pride. Began several years, back in the 90s, it began with the desire to make sure we had a good self-esteem. That if you're feeling too lowly about yourself, you need to have a good self-esteem. You need to think better about yourself. Today, we, we hear the term, we need a, a, a positive self-image. Now, that, there's truth to that. 
But our positive self-image doesn't come because we create the meaning that we think we, we need. Like, I, I have a positive self-image because I look the way I want to look, I wear what I want to wear. It, no, it's, we have a positive self-image because of our identity in Christ, and that's where we need to look. But what we hear in the culture, who most of the time is not looking to Jesus for a positive self-image, they're looking for this, I need this. We, we, we find this pride within self-care. I need, to, I need to make sure I have me time. I need to make sure I have uh, time with my friends, away from my family. The, and this is applauded. This is celebrated. Good for you. You've got self-care going on to make sure you have a positive self-image. We have to ask better questions. Like, wait, where's the image coming from? Is it the image of Christ or is it your image? Because if it's our image, God's actually opposed to that. But if we're going for Christ's image, we have grace because we'll see that humility. But we also live in a culture that says, you deserve something. You deserve something, go out and get it. You deserve something, so if somebody's standing in your way for what you think you deserve, they need to be done away with. The big phrase today is toxic people. Now, sometimes... Proverbs doesn't use the word toxic people. Proverbs has three different people. You've got, you've got the simple, the wise, and the fool. So you have the simple that's just unaware of how to live for God. You've got the wise that's living for God. You've got the fool that's evil. And we've got to be careful on how we, we think we, we have people in our lives that are toxic. Yes, some people are evil, and we need to avoid them. But sometimes... Now, I, I'm venturing into something that can be very confusing, so I don't want that. A lot of times people will say somebody is toxic simply because maybe that person is uh, challenging their thought process on how they think deserve, they deserve life and they're entitled to their own quest to be fulfilled. Like we don't have anybody in our lives anymore that says, have you really thought about that? Because everything now is here, 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 here. Oh, you deserve it. Yeah, you want that? Yeah, it's true to you. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Huh? We don't have somebody saying, um, have you really thought about that? Is that really what you want? And within the church, we need to be able to have these types of relationships within our discipleship to say, not in a condemning way, like, you are wrong. Sometimes that may be appropriate, but this is more about, have you thought about that? But look, we, we can't... Not everybody in our lives is toxic. I can say this. Everybody in our lives is selfish. Everybody in our lives is proud, including us. We're all proud. We're all selfish. So we've got to make sure we use... Sometimes we've got to make sure we use biblical terms for what we're experiencing in our lives. Toxic sometimes is helpful. But really, the Bible, Jesus says they're proud. They're arrogant. They want you to bend for their own will, and you have a struggle because you want them to bend for your will. But behind all of that is a culture that applauds, you just do you. Go ahead. You just do you. And we have to be very careful because it will seep in. It will seep into our lives, and we will find that we are, we're in the peril of pride. It, it, it continues to bug us, even though we don't think. We might find ourselves having God oppose us when we think he should be answering us, so answering our prayers. But we all know pride too well because we're all proud. All of us are proud. Some of us are proud that we're proud, or, or 
Proud of our humility. Some of us are proud of our pride, yeah. But uh, I think pride comes in two flavors. The first is in self-promotion. We just have a great view of ourselves, and we need to make sure everybody else has the same great view of ourselves. So that comes out with competition, comes out with comparisons, boasting, bragging, self-congratulating. I did that so well. Tell me I'm good. There's a phrase that was added to the dictionary a few years ago called uh, humble brag. (laughs) And Christians do it too. God moves so mightily, I'm just so glad he used me to do it. But God gets all the glory. But I'm in the picture. See me in the picture? I'm in the picture with Jesus. But self-congratulating comes uh, oftentimes for us when we, we want to be noticed for our contribution to something. Like, hey, I, I participated in that. So there should be a little praise that comes to me. Self-promotion comes in the form of superiority. Moral superiority, doctrinal superiority, superiority or just by achievement. I've done a lot. Um, or, or our experiences, we can have a superiority that shows up because we think we've had better experiences, and this is where it shows up. If somebody is telling a story, and you have a story similar, it's usually because you think you have a better story. It's got to be careful. We, we can have a story that is also, I also have an experience that is kind of like that. But if we're not careful, we will try to one-up that story that we just heard. Comedian Brian Regan, who is one of the funniest comedians that I have ever seen, he has this thing. He draws this out like in a, a, a gathering party setting. Everybody's telling these stories. But he actually says, astronauts have the, the ones that have been on the moon they have the greatest one-up story because nobody can top their story. So everybody's trying to talk about, he's just, the astronaut comes in, yeah, well, I've walked on the moon. <laughs> it shuts everybody up. Well, nobody has a better experience than that. But it's something that happens often. If we're not careful, we want to make sure that we're not that our, our conversations don't turn to us. They don't reference our experiences. They don't reference our contribution to things. That's promotion, but we can also reference our experiences with the second form of pride, which is self-pity. Now, self-pity is often mistaken for genuine humility, but humility is not self-hatred. Self-pity is actually self-hatred. I don't like myself and I don't know how to get out of this, and God has done this to me. There's condemnation all the time. Nothing is good enough. Nobody has enough. And we don't feel that somebody in our lives has done enough to validate us, to recognize our contribution, to honor our experience. People who are into self-pity look for a constant validation through affirmation. It's constant. Please affirm me. Make me feel. Please include me. And we see, we see this constant need for validation in social media. Whenever somebody puts up their, uh, maybe in the form of a prayer request, having a bad day, hate myself. And what happens afterwards is what everybody, they're fishing. I hate myself. 
Oh, you're beautiful. You're great. You deserve everything. You're, and you just have all these things. But then you know what happens for that person? They're looking at their feed and they're like, only 11 people said I was good. <sighs> Delete. Instagram pictures. Only 100 likes. I needed 200. Delete. It's, we're never satisfied. If we're only looking for our own image in things, and oh, if, we're, if we're looking for our own image in our relationship with our spouse, that's pride. And we can do that through self-promotion or self-pity. We look for our own image, not Jesus' image in our spouse. We would like to delete sometimes the spouse, but can't do that. And self-pity shows up with victimization. Seeking attention through martyrdom. I just My life is so hard, but I do it all for Jesus. Or suffering, or woe. Uh, just, it's just so difficult. I, I battle people all the time, all day. Careful. We have, we have something to be joyful in God about. So let's not make sure, or let's, let's make sure, not not make sure, <laughs> double negative there. Uh, let's make sure that we are not caught in the peril of pride. Both of these forms of pride share the desire to have our ego stoked. We want to be caressed and petted, and it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. But sometimes what we're thinking is not okay because it's selfish. It's a selfish ambition. It's not rooted in the joy and love of God. And we see Jesus and we're able to say, ah, Jesus, you're the one that releases this need for validation because I'm validated by you, by you calling my name, by you saving me. And both of these forms of pride manipulate others so we feel exalted. But Jesus gave us the example. And Peter and James, the apostles, say, hey, at the right time, and Paul, at the right time, there's an exaltation. But we don't have to seek that exaltation. God brings it. Here's Tim Keller uh, in his little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, says this, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. Sometimes when you ask God, God, show me, show me where my pride shows up. Uh, be ready. He'll show you. And he, he, I think he does it in a way that gets us disgusted with it because we see it all over the place and we should. We see it all over the place. God, I'm sorry. I'm disgusted by this. And then we humble ourselves and there's grace. Keller continues, in fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. A truly gospel-humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a gospel-humble person. The gospel-humble person is a self-forgetful person whose ego is just like his or her toes. It just works. What Keller draws out in his booklet is he's not saying the ego needs to be destroyed. He says, you know, body parts, when they function correctly, they don't draw attention to themselves. It's when you bust your toe on the chair that you recognize this toe is hurt and it's drawing attention to itself. When our ego is hurt... When it's bruised, when we have hurt feelings, then all of a sudden we're looking for relief. So what he's saying is it's not about negating how we think about ourselves. He says it's just not thinking so much about ourselves. 
having it work. The toes just work. Oh, wait. Gospel person, forgetful person, is a self-forgetful person whose ego is just like his, his or her toes. It just works. It does not draw attention to itself. The toes just work. The ego just works. Neither draws attention to itself. Another spot in his book, he says this, humility is not thinking less of yourself that gives into self-hatred and condemnation. It's just thinking of yourself less. It's just not about us. It's not about me. And our response is to humble yourself. We want to humble ourselves. James 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. That exaltation, I think, ultimately forever happens within eternity, but I do think there are moments within our lives that God, He gives us these exaltation moments that we're not to go out seeking, but it's a moment that just makes us recognize, God, you really are in control, and you really do love me. And so my validation comes in you, my, 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 sen- my settledness in my soul, it comes from you, not from what people think about me or how I can manipulate them into thinking one way about me. So here, some suggestions on how to pursue humility and humble ourselves. Study the glory of God, uh, particularly the incommunicable attributes of God. Those are the things we can't communicate very well. Does God have a starting point? No. Think about that. He's always been. Until our head spins sometimes. I just can't comprehend. He's everywhere all at the same time. He's not 50% here and 20% there and 30% over there. He's 100% everywhere at the same time. So study the glory of God. Look to Jesus, the example of our humility, and see yourself as God sees you. And when you are honored, when you are exalted, in a special way by somebody in your life. Transfer that glory to Jesus. Being honored doesn't mean I didn't do anything. No, you did something. And it's somebody, if if we're going to honor Darren or or Owen playing up here, it's like, thank you so much for that. And if the response comes, look, it wasn't me, it was Jesus. You can say, I'm pretty sure Jesus would have been better. So careful on saying it was Jesus. But what we do, we don't have to deny it right there. What we do is, thank you, that, that's an answer to prayer. I want to be used. I want God to use my talents and the gifting he's given. I want him to use that. And so that's an answer to prayer that you would, but, but then it goes to the secret moment, not to be stroked, but to say, Jesus, I just transfer this. Thank you for allowing me to be used. I just transfer it all to you. I give it to you. It's your glory. And I want to transfer that to you. And remember what Jesus did with James and John? He was patient with them, and he deferred to the Father. We do the same thing. We are humble. We pursue humility by being patient with those around us and by deferring. This doesn't look like nullifying our contributions. This is not self-hatred. This looks like being awed that God would use us in any way whatsoever and recognizing that the gifts that he gives come from him. The gift that he gives, it's his. And here's the best way to humble ourselves. Serve. Serve others. Serve when it's not comfortable. Serve when it's not convenient. Serve. Serve. 
Serve when you don't think you have the capacity to serve in a particular category. Because God will show up in wonderful, miraculous ways and you'll be left floored saying, well, I never thought I could do this. I never thought I could take a class of four to six-year-olds and not have complete chaos. Watch God do some things. But we have to be willing and ready to step out. It's the best way to forget about ourselves, to serve, to serve, and to count others more significant than ourselves. I want to finish with a a song uh, that we've sung many times before, Christ Be All. So uh, while I take my microphone off, uh, stand up with me, and I'm going to get situated for that song. Lord, we ask that we would truly experience uh, what John the Baptist experienced. When, when it looked like uh, Jesus and he were in competition, and his disciples came to him and said, Oh, Jesus is baptizing more people than you. John said, Oh, that I might decrease. And he must increase. Father, I pray we would understand our role and our discipleship with you. To own it like John, like I really do need to go into the background in order for Jesus to be exalted. Oh, to be empty and lowly, meek and unnoticed, and unknown, and to God, a vessel holy, filled with Christ, and Christ alone. How great is God, His grandeur endless. How frail I come before His throne. I am lost in love relentless that Christ be all and I His own. May Christ be all, and I be nothing. His glory shines in vessels weak. May Christ be all, and I be nothing. This is my hope, not I, but Christ in me. This is my hope, not I, but Christ in me. 
I am poor and I have nothing. All my deeds cannot avail. But Christ endured the Father's crushing. He bowed his head as mercy bled peace to prevail. He bowed his head as mercy bled peace to prevail. May Christ be all and I be nothing. His glory shines in vessels weak. May Christ be all and I be nothing. This is my hope. Not I, but Christ in me. This is my hope. Not I, but Christ in me. Bring me low, my heart lower still. That your grace my pride relieves. May these words resound loud until every tribe and song believes. Bring me low, my heart lower still, that your grace my pride relieves. May these words resound loud until every tribe and song can sing may Christ be all and I be nothing his glory shines in vessels weak may Christ be all and I be nothing this is my hope not I but Christ in me this is my hope not I but Christ in me on golden shores of sure salvation I will run to meet my King hallelujah freed from shame and all accusation he'll give himself nothing I'll bring he'll give himself nothing I'll bring may Christ be all and I be nothing his glory shines in vessels weak. May Christ be all and I be nothing. This is my hope, not I but Christ in me. This is my hope, not I but Christ in me. Lord, it really is our prayer that we would be nothing so you will be everything. 
And we will recognize that you already are all things. And God, give us grace to make way for you to be all things. So, Lord, we love you. We love you. So our commission today will be reminded of James 4, verse 10. He gives more grace. Think about that. More grace. Grace upon grace. So, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. No, he opposes the proud. I was just quoting First Peter. <laughs> he, uh, he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's go as a humble people. Amen? Amen. 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 God bless us.